Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Mark Fraser. I am joined by the mysterious, ever present, <laughs> full of the cold, <laughs> Chris Cusack. Full of it. Full of it. Scottish Parliament. Yeah, yeah. Nice to see you, Mark. Uh, who's this you. other guy on the screen? Yeah, who in front who of me? is this guy? Where <laughs> he doesn't look from? like he's from Ulness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so David Weaver is not with us again this week. He's away doing marriage type things uh, but we are joined by Ryan from the Broken Record Player Podcast which is coming all the way out of fucking California can you believe it? <laughs> What's up guys? What's up Ryan? Yeah man it's nice to, it's nice to meet you um, Yeah it's nice the weather <laughs> Yes <laughs> Yeah <laughs> We have rain here um, apparently you don't so. No no we've got sun out here usually fog in San Francisco but we have some sun no rain it hasn't rained for probably like five or six months Holy I can't even. Shit. I don't even know. Honestly, at this point, I don't even know what rain is anymore. So I can't even. I can't even imagine what that would be like. Can't Literally, even in my head. yeah. Everybody's one spark away from bursting into flames. So. <laughs> oh yeah, we've got fires out here. So yeah, there's forest fires and everything. So so uh, Ryan, you are you do the the Broken Record Player podcast. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Your inspiration behind it, um, and yeah, just what? Why? Yeah, <laughs> totally. Why? Yeah. So the Broken Record Player podcast came about last year. I was, well, actually, I had the idea a couple years ago, but I didn't really start it until COVID hit and I was stuck at home with little to do. I mean, I was working from home, but then I was like, well, I could just hop on over to my other computer and do a show. And I wanted to, basically what we do on the the podcast is take an album that I love and my guest loves and we just dive into it and we talk about it. We go track by track. We talk about the impressions the album has on us or had on us when we were younger. And I got the idea and the inspiration from other podcasts. Like there was a movie podcast that I liked called The Rewatchables, where they would take a movie and pick it apart and really get into it. And I thought, well, that's cool. I would like to do that with albums or I'd like to hear someone do that with albums. And I don't know why. Maybe it's just I wasn't searching good enough or hard enough, but I couldn't find a lot of podcasts that were doing that, especially with a variety of albums. It was mostly like a specific genre, like let's take apart these indie rock bands and their albums, or let's do just only heavy metal or whatever. And I was like, well, I kind of like a little bit of everything. So I thought I would just do it myself and bring on friends of mine and guests and people that love music as well. And it's been a blast. It's been a lot of fun because some of the best conversations I've ever had have been about music and and mm-hmm. I could talk for hours with people about it. So that's that's the inspiration for it. And that's what's going on. So we just uh, uh, we just put out an episode. Well, Power Slave was the episode that I put out today when we we're mm-hmm. recording. But nice. But yeah, I've got a question. Yeah. Uh, and this this is a question that sometimes gets posed to us as well. Because we've got a reasonable catalogue of stuff now. You got any personal favourite episodes that if someone was going to tune into your podcast, you might suggest they dip into first? That's a good question. Um, I really enjoyed the episode I did on John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. Nice. Uh, my guest was fantastic. She brought a lot of background knowledge and everything. And it was a good episode diving into that jazz classic and and talking about that but i also really enjoyed one of the more recent episodes i did which was dead kennedy's fresh fruit for rotting vegetables because Mm -hmm. the my guest was a comedian and it was just really funny some of the lines he said and he was really animated it was fun to talk to him about about this punk classic that also had a bit of humor in it and sarcasm Mm -hmm. so 
that that's another favorite of mine. So yeah, I've never seen Jello play music live, but I've seen him do stand up maybe four times. You know, spoken word. Yeah, he's he definitely straddles that line, and even the stuff that Lard put out and some of the AT stuff, it's quite. Yeah, it's got its tongue in its cheek a lot. So yeah, I can see why that would be a good mix. Yeah, yeah, and he ran for mayor, and we talked about that. And it was <laughs> his his campaign ideas were ridiculous. Like he wanted businessmen to wear clown suits in the city, and he wanted to uh, have people who lost their jobs because of like tax initiatives to panhandle in rich neighborhoods and and just complete utter chaos and and mayhem is what he wanted as mayor of san francisco so (laughs) (laughs) it's a meta sketch that's that's quite nice you should have filmed that yeah you put that together something pretty watchable so as part of the re-listenables uh which i guess this this probably is for tonight uh, ryan uh, what did you choose for us do you want to introduce it yeah i got tinderbox by Susie and the banshees And we do the math here. It is their seventh, seventh, sixth, or seventh studio album. I think it's seven. Seven, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah maybe yeah. it's a six. Yeah, <laughs> pretty deep oh, well. in their yeah. in their catalog, though. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I chose this one. It is my favorite Susie and the Banshees album, and it's one of my favorite albums of the whole post punk goth genre. Nice, it's a good choice. It's yeah. like. You know, Susie and the Banshees is a band that we, we talk often about how you, you can spend your whole life listening to music and yet still develop a blind spot for certain artists. You know, you, you they're just always in the periphery. You never quite get round to it. Or maybe their catalogue is so big that it's kind of daunting because, you know, you're like, when am I going to have the time to listen through all this? And Susie and the Banshees is a band for me that maybe only in the last 12 months really came into focus. You know, it was via a couple of other episodes we did. And especially one episode we did about a Glasgow-based actor no longer around called Bad Dancer, who are particularly good but are really, really similar to this era of Susie and the Banshees. Um, And I guess that was when I first you know, sort of started setting the time aside and listening to them. So it, it's fun in the context of this to get even deeper into that because certainly from that time a few emerged and we'll, we'll mention them as we're going. But to be forced to wreck him a tinderbox, which wasn't one that I'd initially uh, spent a lot of time with, was really useful. And I can I can kind of see initially as well why I think you might have chosen it um, as to whether or not we agree. You know, we don't always agree uh, that it's the the unsung one in the in the arsenal. So let's let's dig about. I mean, we usually do a little bit of background on the artists. I don't know if you want to take the reins there, man, or I'm happy to do something. It's up to you. Yeah, I can I can totally do that. So yeah, Susie, Sweet. Susie and the Banshees, of course. Uh, Susie Sue, kind of the the leader of the group, and and really the lineup is three people i mean they bring in other people throughout the years but the the main lineup is suzy sue on vocals uh steve severin on a bass and budgie on drums that's kind of like the main core and they would bring in other people throughout the years like robert smith of the cure even would play guitar on a couple albums and tour with them but those those three would be like the core members throughout all the years 
And yeah, they kind of were, they're from London, of course, and they sort of emerged out of the punk scene. I know Susie was, was part of like the Sex Pistols sort of um, groupies or their sort of their like uh, entourage, if you will. She was hanging out with them. I think Billy Idol was there too. Yeah, he was. It's <laughs> called the Brom- the Bromley Contingent. Yeah, that's right. Think, yeah. Yeah, they, they didn't particularly like that name. But yeah, that was like well, around about 1975, I think she'd met Severin at a Roxy music show and then they became super fans of the, the Pistols. Yeah, and she was there with all of that and then formed her own band with actually Sid Vicious originally was playing in the band John Simon Ritchie uh, yeah. as he was on yeah he was drumming yeah that. it was yeah. like a, it was like a one off performance with an, another random person playing bass so I can't remember yeah um and they did what like they did the improvised version of the lord's prayer after somebody dropped out of the 100 club punk fest that Malcolm McLaren was putting on so, is that right i think that's yeah. right yeah some sounds about right yeah yeah um, and yeah, that was that was intended to be a one-off show, but then yeah. some maniac offered them <laughs> another gig. <laughs> yeah, and and then the rest is history. They pretty much, you know, the the Banshees, you know, Susie and the Banshees became an actual band and started off being very post-punk. And as the '80s kind of went on, Susie started to develop more of a goth image, and she changed her hair and her look, and she wore a lot more leather and fishnets and and really started to embrace the darker stuff that was happening with like Bauhaus and and stuff like that and then their their music started to get more gothy and atmospheric throughout the 80s and by the 90s you could almost call them a pop band in many ways like a dream pop band they mm-hmm. kind of went through a lot of transformations throughout the decade and and switched their sound up a lot and they released a a good number of records so when when people think of like goth music or post-punk they're usually one of the bands that is in the top tier of the genre yeah it is amazing that you know we'll, we'll go into the albums in a bit more detail in a little bit but starting with the scream when they were right on the cusp of punk versus post-punk you know they were happening around the same time as wire and that whole notion of like post-punk started to happen where the the, the gobby simplicity wasn't enough anymore and people wanted to kind of branch out and do something a bit more musical now that you'd got the kind of madness out of their system so that was kind of interesting but as you say by like by like the late 80s and 90s some of their stuff sounds like cocktail twins Um, and it's a really broad palette that they have across that that decade. It's also amazing how long they stuck around. I mean, I think Susie Sue had responded quite abruptly to sort of slightly loaded questions about them replacing Genesis and Yes in terms of the dinosaurs of the of the mainstream industry at the time. Just because they had longevity when so many, I mean, The Cure may be the exception, the other exception, but so many of their peers didn't. You know, I mean, Wire, for example, broke up and reformed and took on different versions, stripped down to duo, all that kind of stuff. But Susie and the Banshees, yeah, they were a, they were a going concern for a long, long time. Yeah, and, and yeah, and that's a good point. A lot of their contemporaries didn't last long, like Joy Division either. And Bauhaus lasted for a little bit, but they kind of went, they kind of stopped and started again. And I guess, yeah, exactly. I guess they're back together now. I'm supposed to see them at a festival next year. So we'll see. But uh, <laughs> I, and I guess it's all the original members. So 
it's it's interesting to see them kind of go through those phases but yes Susie and the banshees they kind of they stopped in 2002 they called it quits and they haven't gotten back together and i don't think there's any chance of that i don't think that's a bad thing i mean i don't mean that in any way as a criticism of the band i just the whole legacy tour thing is getting kind of painful i was listening to a couple of tracks earlier on via an and unlogged in Spotify so I was getting adverts and the new fucking Diana Ross album came on and it's like an electro fucking pop hip hop thing and I'm like <laughs> Jesus fuck what are we doing like yeah. this is it yeah. we're caught in like a going down the plug hole of retro just like a spiral of time that we can't break out of so the bands that decide to call it quits and preserve the memories I'm, I'm kind of down with that that's, that's alright yeah I mean ABBA just came out or is coming out with a new record too and it's like <laughs> ABBA they haven't been uh, well I guess they've been relevant because of musicals and stuff but I mean they haven't put out an album since the 80s so. The strange thing, Abba's audience has felt like they've been in their mid-40s for 40 years. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Susie and the Banshees, other notable things about them, I guess one elephant in the room is you have to address Susie wearing swastikas in her arms. Yeah. And yeah. Called yeah. out for that, mm-hmm. which she has apologised for profusely. As she made comments about trying to shock the bourgeois yeah. um, and that she really regretted that it. it was kind of a childish move and obviously... One of their fairly well-known songs from the early period uh, was Metal Postcard. Or Mita Geisen, which was dedicated or about uh, John Hartfield. Um, he was like an anti-Nazi artist. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it clearly wasn't coming from any sort of profound ideological place. It's no. just fucking puerile, I think. Yeah, but yeah. And none that, the, that was nonetheless. A, yeah, that was a punk thing, too. Like, in, in general, there were a lot of punks who would wear it, not, not because they were actually in line with the ideology, but because they were trying to shock people, which doesn't make it right. But, uh, but still, you know, there was a, there was a more of a, a rebelliousness to it than a than an actual like yeah we believe in it and uh yeah you know uh, you know it's, we spoke about this in the past i think like as much as i'm like a big fan of you know shock tactics at times i mean there's definitely a place for it and art should be challenging and irreverence even i mean satire shouldn't really have any limits i don't think but i don't think punk bands wearing swastikas in the late 70s you know like 30 years after some of the fucking horrendous 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 things that went on you know again without meaning to get too sanctimonious we were talking about this in the past episode of people like holocaust survivors walking by kids in the streets with swastikas you know the the the, the, the sheer lack of fucking empathy that, that 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 suggests you know that that kind of level of fucking self-involvement as much as i get that they didn't mean it it's i still have very little you know truck with that at all like i just can't fucking believe people could be so fucking stupid as to do that in that situation she would later get into confrontations with uh with skinheads who'd come to the shows mm-hmm. you know yeah. and just like shout at them on stage and tell them to fuck off and all that you know so clearly there was uh <laughs> certainly a, a lot of regret there for trying to co-opt that imagery for shock value without actually truly realizing the significance of what that is you know yeah, and, and John Lydon's making up for it by supporting Donald Trump and selling butter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, the butter. Well, and, but remember, Susie also 
started to use the Star of David in her mm-hmm. uh, fashion, and and a lot of Susie and the Banshees shirts have the Star of David on the front, and they wrote a song called Israel. So she, the I think mm-hmm. she was trying to like may, maybe make up for the fact that she once did that, and and was really trying to be like, no, 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 I'm not involved with that in any way. yeah uh, i get like a couple of minor details from that like they started out i mean there's people talk about Susie mark one mark two even mark three like with the different guitar lineups which was like you think as you said rotating around the core uh, that original incarnation peter fenton and kenny morris i think it was fenton was replaced by a guy called john mckay on guitar in 1977 and now they did their first peel session in 77 which is pretty good going Um, I mean, Mackay's pretty fondly thought of. I mean, Hong Kong Garden, his work in that received quite a significant accolade in one of the big guitar magazines for the performance of it. You know, it's it's pretty well looked upon. Um, they've had a few really good guitarists, uh, including, as you say, Robert Smith. I think the the deal with Robert Smith, the, the, they were touring, supporting them, right? Mm-hmm. And then Mackay was replaced by a guy called McGeeach. Yeah, that's right. John McGeeach became the guitarist. He was a guy that was in magazine. Budgie had joined. But then Robert Smith came back after McGeeach and did another partial tour and then bailed out on the tour and apparently it led to like years of acrimony between him and Susie Sue because yeah. he'd gone back to do stuff with the cure citing that it was just too much stress being in the two groups yeah. uh, and th- and that's when they brought in uh, John Carruthers guitarist Mark III and the guy in question for this album um, John Carruthers by the way for people in Scotland if that name sounds familiar to you we're talking about John Valentine Carruthers we're not talking about John Carruthers the fucking piece of shit lawyer <laughs> from, the south, the, from the south side of Glasgow that was involved in the Lindsay Armstrong trial. This is a this is an absolute fucking ass piece of a lawyer in Glasgow that made a rape victim hold her pants up in court, and the girl later went home and killed herself. And so this guy oh became my God. Yeah. this guy became notorious for that fucking lack of uh, again empathy for rape victims. And so if anybody's thinking John Carruthers is not the fucking same guy, <laughs> you can still enjoy this album relatively guilt free. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. If it was so, that guy, I wouldn't be listening to it. Maybe. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's 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 a major uh, unsungopedia disambiguation right there. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, so yeah. I mean, do you want to talk about their, their discography then, and, and maybe have a little chat about the the albums? Yeah, I, I think we need to, right? We need to. We need yeah. to just kind of like f- uh, flick through some of the early years uh, from this, the scream onwards, I guess. Mm-hmm. So should we start with the scream then? <laughs> to do That's it, probably <laughs> start chronologically. Start sensible. at the beginning, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so they released in nineteen seventy eight, which is kind of the midpoint of punk, right? I'm 
punk is big here it's happening um, mm-hmm. they recorded it in August released it in November as a, as a band though they'd been they'd been a thing for well over a year and pretty well talked about they'd mm-hmm. already done Peel Sessions as I said yeah. so they were already like a big draw This the album was awaited it wasn't like the album dropped and then people were like oh who's this it was can't wait to hear this fucking record you know right. it's kind of the dream scenario yeah yeah this nice. album is is a great debut it's it's raw I really uh, this is one of my favorite Susie records it it's my favorite of their their early early period uh, it's you know it's interesting right from the start for a punk band their songs are pretty fucking long and I mean right from the start this is a punk record but I've seen it also written about as being one of the first proper post-punk albums because it doesn't sound typically like punk music yeah it doesn't even sound like their earliest their own earliest material it's kind of well produced it's quite sophisticated Severin's bass in it is pretty it's pretty groovy at points which wasn't really a thing that happened in a lot of punk um, even Susie's delivery and stuff like Jigsaw feeling I think already sort of sets the template for bands like Simple Minds it's big you know it's like a really big ambitious sounding record I mean we spoke about Hong Kong Garden already like big single identifiable for them uh, the track Switch was covered by Faith No More mm-hmm. semi-regularly live it's a proper record you know it's not the kind of throwaway debut that you might expect yeah it's yeah. a gr- it's a good album I really like it Carcass is one of my favourite songs I don't know It's it's got like a got a great driving pounding beat to it and i love susie's vocals in it um but yeah the whole album for the most part is is like you said doesn't sound like the punk scene as much and i'm trying to think of some of the other post-punk bands that were around at the time because joy division hadn't even released their first album yet uh, the sound people like that were yeah. around. Like the, they were also like a little, little bit gothy. Yeah, like the birthday party was around. Mm-hmm. They yeah, they, they hadn't actually released their debut, I don't think yet. But they were they were known. They were playing. But this is a, this is a great intro or a great entry for Susie and the Banshees. Just mm-hmm. a, yeah, I, I saw a pretty interesting comment on this because this is when. Um, uh, Morris Kenny Morris, the original drummer, um, Peter Hook of Joy Division in New Order, had said that Morris's style of playing was like particularly inspirational to a lot of the bands that followed because he spent so much time on the toms. And he said again that wasn't really a feature of the scene at that time. He was pretty well known, especially amongst drummers, for having a real fondness for this kind of tub thumping approach. Even though Morris didn't, you know, become the definitive drummer for Susie and the Banshees. Morris did sort of set something in motion there. I, I really like the Beatles cover, <laughs> Helter Skelter. Tell me, tell me, tell me. 
it's got a lot more attitude than the original, and I, I think the original is a really good song. But no, it's a good album. It wasn't. It wasn't really what I was expecting, to be honest. Um, and I was, I was pleasantly surprised by that. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your feelings in Join Hands, the follow-up from '79? So, have you heard the Holy Bible by the Mind Street Preachers, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Oh, like so many guitar sounds and, and songwriting techniques have been taken clean off this, right? Off, off of joint hands and put on the Holy Bible. And I fucking love the Holy Bible. And like I said, like I said to Ryan earlier on, um, I had never properly listened or even, I couldn't even have told you a Susie and the Banshee's song if it came on the radio before listening to this, doing the research for this podcast. And that was the first thing that struck me about this album. Oh my god, there's so many there's so many like indie bands and stuff that are really indebted to this sound. Um I think it's cool. I lo- love and avoid is great. It's a proper punk song, so obviously I'm gonna love it because I am a massive punk. I really like Regal Zone. It's really creepy, quite sparse sounding, quite abrasive as well. Um what did you guys think of it? I I like it, but I definitely would put it slightly lower in the catalogue for me. It's 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 not my favorite. I, I think it's good, but I like the the debut a lot better. And mm. I, I think like it kind of still has that same overall sound as the debut. It's not like completely different. I don't know. To me, it almost feels like a companion album in a way, mm. which I don't. It's not a bad thing. It's just um, I like it better when they would always change things up. And I think Join Hands is kind of samey in a lot of ways as the Scream. It's very similar. Yeah, I was, I don't know, there's not as many songs on there that I will listen to repeatedly as other albums, so I like it. I don't, there's not a bad, well, there might be one bad Susie in the Banshees album, we'll get to that <laughs> later, uh, but it's going to be a little bit lower on the on my ranking, mm. for sure. I, I, I mean, it, it's still the same lineup, right? So it's got that consistency factor, um, except it's had less time for the tracks to be workshopped, mm-hmm. you know, because as they'd been a band for longer prior to, to Scream. So I think that shows the songs aren't quite as well formed or... I mean, Susie's showing a little bit of ambition. I mean, they bring in some kind of political and international themes. There's stuff about the Iranian Revolution in it and World War One. Um I think you could really hear this this album, maybe even more so than screaming bands like Babes in Toyland. Even the, the quality of the recording at times seems like Babes in Toyland. Uh, and I, I like the fact that they made a kind of reference, a nod to the fact that their first ever track was an improvised Lord's Prayer with the track Lord's Prayer. Albeit that song is 14 fucking minutes long. <laughs> right. That's pretty wild for yeah. a punk, inverted commas, band. Um but then, yeah, then stuff totally changed. Uh, new lineup: um, McGeech on guitar and the drummer Budgie from the Slits taking the saddle. Um, Kaleidoscope 1980 was their most successful album in the UK that only got to number five, which I'm pretty amazed about. Given the legacy and the the, the the status and the the prestige around Susie and the Banshees that they only got to number five here, um, the whole album is brighter, clearer. Um, there's loads of new ideas in it. I think obviously Happy House is a track that has made a bit of it's had a bit of a resurgence here in sort of post punk and indie club nights. You hear it a lot now. I think Hybrid with the saxophones interesting. 
Um, and I like I like track Red Light, uh, the one that's kind of synths and drum machines. Yeah, and it's, it's, cool. got, it's got that weird narrative of the camera samples in it mm. and stuff like that. It's it's just a pretty ambitious record. guys get any strong feelings on this one oh yeah yeah i love this record this is one of my favorite susie records uh things get like you said more colorful things get a little psychedelic even to a degree there's a lot there's there's some trippy songs here i really love happy house and uh christine they were both like big club songs so this is you know susie and the banshees is starting to really get played more in the clubs with an album like this and I can see why it would be such a very successful album for them. The whole album goes through like this, almost feels like it is kind of a spiral. It's kind of like a little trippy in a lot of ways. It is bringing in a lot more sounds and like you said, the saxophone. So they're doing a lot more experimenting with, with this record. So yeah, I really, I really like this one a lot. Yeah, for me, Trophy as well. Trophy's got a boy vibe, which I think is kind of cool. Um, that kind of clangy, crisp guitar, really nice. Her vocal, always on point, is really good on this record. Desert Kisses has strings on it, which I guess kind of belies some of the things they would then go on to do later on in their career when they would sort of start to lean a bit more heavily on strings. And yeah, I really like Paradise Place as well. There's that, the guitar's got a sort of chorus thing going on, which I think is really cool. Um, yeah. So after that, um, things get serious. Things get serious. Yeah, yeah. things get serious. It's Juju, right? Which is just, I'm going to put my car to the table, man. This record is fucking superb. Yeah, <laughs> it's really yeah. good, man. It's, it's terrific Mark you know what you know sometimes I'm prone to go and kind of take a sort of straw poll of some of the rating sites especially the fans rating sites and every I think it's the first time that every single site has had the same album as the fans favourite like Juju was number one on every single possible list I could find the others kind of fluctuated you know the Scream was number two in a couple it was further down at number seven on a couple uh, and the one that we're going to talk about later Tinderbox you know there was a number six a number uh, out of ten seven out of ten four out of eleven two out of thirteen which is pretty high but Juju consistently is just seen as being like their crowning achievement and I, I, I can see why it's not just a good record it's a totally pioneering record yeah, definitely. It It's getting a lot darker. I, this was actually the first album I bought by Susie and the Banshees. I remember picking this up on CD and just being like, holy shit, like spellbound right off the bat, just kicking off the record. That still today is one of my favorite Susie and the Banshee songs. It is such an amazing track, especially to kick off an album. It's yeah. pretty relentless, too. And then things get melodic with Into the Light, things slow down a bit. But then you're back to another banger with Arabian Nights, this classic dance hit that I still hear in the clubs today.
I, I just, yeah, I love this record. It, it, I love how it goes from dark to some sort of light, but then gets darker as you go down, especially with like Monitor and Night Shift, which are two of my favorite songs on the album. Funny you say that, actually. Night Shift, I, I, this is a stretch, but this, this is like fucking proto grunge, okay? It's like, <laughs> it is a sludgy, dark song. Yeah. Night Shift caught me off guard. I didn't expect it to be so thick and grimy. And Yeah, totally. Into the Light for me is, is my favourite song on it. And it, it, yeah, AFI agreed. certainly ripped this song off almost wholesale in some of their later career. about it i actually sent it to my girlfriend i was like does it just me or does this sound like latter day afi and just like i can totally hear that and i was like yeah because it clearly fucking ripped it off and i love afi right so but that's fine you, <laughs> i mean you can hear it in so many bands yeah so got- many bands i think it's cool I, th- I think it's a great record man it's definitely the, one of the best so one of the best of that era easily yeah. oh yeah, yeah easy easy yeah and i don't know if i would put it number one for Susie and the banshees but it's definitely it, it it's either number one or number two it it pretty much is between this one and and the one we're talking about for me which, as to which Susie album's my favorite but yeah this one i mean it's so influential like radiohead was inspired by it smashing pumpkins jesus and mary chain lots of bands were really influenced by this record so um a kiss in the dream house 1982 uh, i mean it's got a tough act to follow I think this album kind of cemented their credibility with critics. I noticed that, like, first of all, people were like, how are they going to follow that? But also because they went in this much bigger goth style, aesthetically, musically, you know, um, they, they became kind of the leading lights for that whole transition. It's, it's brilliantly played. The performances musically are excellent on it. Um, I would say that song for song, it isn't one of my favourites. I think whilst the performances and the execution and the capture and everything are, are great, the actual writing isn't the most memorable. Um, She's a Carnival's pretty decent. It's a bit of a banger with kind of some decent hooks in it. Um, I think Slow Dive has got this cool kind of clubby, uh, minimalist industrial feel to it. But other than that, actually musically, this, this album didn't jump out to me, albeit it does still sound like a progression in terms of their palette. Yeah, I mean, C- Cascade for me, I really like that. I think a million bands have definitely ripped off the guitar intro in that song, like no doubt about it. Um, their drums have a crazy amount of gated reverb on them, which, which I find a bit strange. Um, and I think this, this album's got quite a, quite a lot of this. It's got like a, um, they use like this really creepy 80s, almost vaudeville synthy organy sound, which kind of comes in in a few songs. It's quite prominent in Cascade though. And Slow Dive. I think that's a fucking good song, man. The strings on it are lovely, mm. for sure. you, you got to remember, it's a bit like the Depeche Mode phenomenon where the albums often incorporate sounds that had only just arrived because this is like an era of innovation in synth technology. And, you know, you started off with analogue, then it moved to digital and FM and all these kind of things. So every year, these exciting new products were arriving 
And especially when the bands were more successful and they could afford the, the, the new things to muck about with them, they were then cropping up in their albums. And this that drove Depeche Mode's career for years, famously so. And I think it's also the case, to some extent, with Susan DeBanchie's, certainly DX7 plays a big big part later on in their career when Severin gets one of those, the Yamaha keyboard, which is a fucking brilliant keyboard. Amazing. And you can see why it's started to pop up so much. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're going to start to notice that from album to album, that the technology is starting to become a feature as well yeah i like it it's definitely a step in a different direction which is welcome one of the reasons i love this band is they constantly did different things and this is very different from juju but it's like chris was saying it's not as memorable for me like what's memorable about it is that it's definitely more orchestrated there's a lot more I think sounds they're bringing in like green fingers for example has this folky feel to it and I believe there's like sort of a flute sound in there, which I kind of liked at first. I was like, this is kind of a cool track. But for the most part, it, it like I don't take songs from this album too often. And like if I were to make a playlist, I wouldn't really I don't think I would take any songs from from this. If I were doing like a top 10 or a top 15 Susie tracks playlist, I don't know if I would take any from this album. Slow Dive is good. But uh, yeah, it's it's I like it. It sounds good when you listen to it all together. But track for track, I agree. It's it's not as good as Juju or other records Mm -hmm. for me. I'm guessing Slow Dive was good enough to give the band Slow Dive their name. So (laughs) right. That's that's an accolade. Yeah. Uh, Now, Hyena 1984, uh, which, by the way, Mark, is their sixth album. Yeah. Thus making Ryan correct. Yeah. Oh, you know. <laughs> about Tinderbox being number seven. Perfect, um, but uh, <laughs> Hyena in 1984, huge production on it, but it was a reasonable commercial success, really showcased her voice big time. I have to say, for me, the, the band's best song is Dazzle, the, the first track in this album. I think it's a fantastic bit of music. It's huge, elegant, patient, euphoric pop song. Um, has a big drop in it in like a minute 20. It's got huge string, string strikes in it. It's just so grandiose. Um, I think it sort of reminds me a little bit about the scale of bands like Twilight Sad, that big swirling, reverberating, reverb-soaked, atmospheric thing. Where the, I mean, I just think it's a fantastic bit of music. Can't say enough good things about that song. That said... I don't think the album overall is amazing. I think it's that I'd struggle to spend much time with many of the other songs. Hmm. Well, I I actually disagree. I think it's a fantastic album. I I think it's very at- melodic, atmospheric. I love the cover of Dear Prudence. I really really love that cover. I like swimming horses. Susie's getting very, um, I don't know what the correct word would be here, but on swimming horses, she's she's really experimenting with her voice more, I think, and, and I love how she sounds on it.
But you know, but the video for that, it's like the video for that struck from their channels and catalogue because they kind of got leaned on too much by the director, you know, to sort of take off the makeup and all that kind of stuff. And they really hated the results. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I didn't realize that. I've Yeah, I saw the video on YouTube, but it wasn't their channel. It was some... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, they're not, they don't like it at all. They try huh. to get rid of it. Well, I, I like it, the song. I like Take Me Back. And Dazzle is definitely, I, I think, the best song on the album. That's definitely one of my favorite Susie and the Banshees songs. I, I like it. I think it's... I almost honestly was going to pick this for an underrated <laughs> album. Because... Hey. It could well be that it's just so overshadowed by how much I fucking love the first song. I mean, that is a phenomenon that I have encountered before where I'm like, wow, everything is not as good as that. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I, But I remember buying this record, bringing it up to the counter, and the clerk was like, oh, this is my favorite Susie and the Banshees record. And I was like, oh, cool. And I had only heard at that point Dear Prudence, the cover. And so when I heard Dazzle, I'm like, whoa. It starts off amazing, and it's it's definitely moving in more of an artsy direction for sure, and it's got more of that psychedelic vibe in some of the songs, which I always like when when Susie and the Banshees experiments with that kind of stuff. Uh, makes the album a lot more I don't know listenable in some ways, like in terms of there's a lot going on, so you have a lot to pick out. So I yeah I really like this record. I quite like Blow Down the House. Um, the atmospherics of it are really cool. It has, it has a, a Celtic feel almost. There's woodwind and, mar- and marimba in it as well, which make it sound really unsettling at points, which I quite like. Um, I mean, obviously Tinderbox was next, the seventh album mark, and, yep. <laughs> um, and then Through the Looking Glass was 87, and that's like basically a covers album. Some good, some not so good some interesting uh not a big fan of the cover of the passenger i don't know that that needed to happen um but strange fruits an interesting one It's a fucking interesting and devastatingly poignant song anyway mm. for anyone that's not uh, familiar uh, it's got lines uh, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze and uh, this whole notion of strange fruit is actually victims of lynchings hanging in trees it's a it's a fucking an intense number uh, it's kind of it's kind of brave to take it on I guess The Passenger is their biggest song on Spotify by far Which is unsurprising. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. I I'm not a big fan of covers albums in general, mm. and this is no exception. I don't like when bands do this. I don't mind a cover on an album, but I don't I don't really like full studio cover albums. I just think it's kind of a waste of time, in my opinion. Um, I didn't like the Passenger cover really, and I was really excited because. I saw your lost little girl on here. I'm a huge Doors fan and I'm not really a big fan of that cover either. So I'm not, I don't know. There's really not a whole lot to like for me on this album. I don't think it's bad, but I think it's definitely maybe my second to least favorite record yeah. they've done. So it feels completely inessential. Mm-hmm. And then the next year they did their next album, which was Peep Show, right? Yep. Um, that's an interesting record. Out the back door. She gets- 
I think it's very interesting. I I struggle with this at times because it ultimately just misses the top five for me. But I I like it. I think it's it's a good album with with again moving in a different direction from from Tinderbox. It's definitely going more in the pop direction. And I don't necessarily mind that. I think Susie does a great job with pop songs and and pop vocals and and I like that. Like Peekaboo is such a is such a weird but catchy song and The Killing Jar is such a really it, I really like that song. It's it's got a great sound to it. This album has a lot of songs I like, but then there's songs I'm not really that keen on. So it's kind of a mixed bag. But overall, I think it's it, it's a good album for sure. It's an interesting development to start to bring in accordion and cello and things like that as well. Yeah. To be honest, I find Peekaboo really annoying. I think the, <laughs> the, the, the chorus, the chorus hook, just really grates on me. But I do think like the two songs you mentioned, Ryan, The Killing Jar and The Scarecrow, I think they're both fantastic. I like how the Killing Jar is right beside Peekaboo, so it's really understated compared to the, the pomposity of that song. And it's got that cello, like you say, Chris, which is cool. Um, and Scarecrow feels really moody, but also has like a real 80s pop vibe. Um, I mean, it's not a huge song by any means, and I, I don't think it would be a single, but yeah, it does feel quite poppy to me. And the, the bass line is really, really, really huge big country vibes on that as well, mm. I think. <laughs> Shout out to my boys. Yeah. <laughs> All the way from the kingdom of Fife. <laughs> uh, so then it's superstition. So things start to get a bit fruity, <laughs> I think, in the nineties. <laughs> I keep waiting for Ryan to drop the. You know, earlier on he teased that there's there's maybe one bad album, and I keep waiting for the face to drop when you say a, a new album name. Now it's not not this one. Uh, it's the next one. Um, but this this one I'm not a big fan of really either. Like there are some songs on here I do like. I mean, the single "Kiss Them" for me is catchy. Uh, it I don't think it's my favorite or one of my favorite songs but it's it's fine i actually really like the song silver waterfalls i found that to be kind of a cool poppy track and i found that to be actually much catchier than a lot of the other songs on here Overall, this album, I don't return to it very often. You know, it's not my favorite from mm. them, and and it's definitely in the bottom tier. But it's not, it's not my least favorite. Kiss them from me is uh, at least going to reappear in the Nexus, so I'm grateful to it for that. <laughs> One of the things when we did the Pesh mode, when we did Violator, which I think came out the same year as Superstition, 1991. Um, when we when we did that record, we spoke about how, and you mentioned a little bit earlier on with the new technology, Chris, coming through. Mm-hmm. Um, Violator sounds of its time, but it doesn't sound aged 
they're obviously exploring the new technology and, and making use of that and it does very much sound of its era it couldn't have been made any other time and, and yeah some of the sounds do sound a bit dated but it works really well in the context of the record mm-hmm. I think this the, 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 the choice of, of production and, and, and particular electronic instrumentation on this really dates this album for me like really seriously dates it in a way that when you listen back to or you hear like on the radio early 90s pop songs or dance songs it's got the same kind of half cringe vibe if that makes sense it's the wrong side of, of the 90s sonically for me mm-hmm. I get what you're saying yeah another thing that may or may not be in the wrong side of the 90s was the uh, Batman Returns uh, Tim Burton's second take at the franchise because uh, Susie and the Banshees wrote and recorded and released a, a single at Tim Burton's specific request for this right face to face Yeah, let's, yeah, yeah, let's, okay, I have two things to say. <laughs> Batman Returns is one of my favorite Batman films of all time. because yeah, I think it's great. Uh, I, think I think it's, it's amazing. It, yeah, I was yeah. a kid when that came out, and I just remember it being everywhere, and just being, Batman mania was crazy in the early 90s because of the first film and then the animated show and everything. It was just like, to be a kid at that time, yeah, Batman was everything. The song is not that great. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, 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 I was so excited because I didn't know as a kid, I didn't know who Susie and the Banshees were. But when I got older and I got into Susie and the Banshees and I looked back and saw that they did a song for Batman Returns, I got really excited because I'm like, that's a perfect combo. Tim Burton, Batman Returns, Susie and the Banshees. And I listened to it and... I was like, oh, I was expecting something a little bit more cool, gothy. <laughs> um, like if the Crow soundtrack, you know, a lot of those bands yeah, that were yeah. on the Crow soundtrack sounded really awesome on that soundtrack. Yeah. I was expecting something like that, and I didn't get it. I got some weird, like Middle Eastern sounding Susie song, which just didn't really appeal to me. In his head, right? It's it's great. It's a it's a brilliant idea. He's probably thinking about those early eighties albums and going. They're goth legends, yes, man. And Tim Burton's a goth legend. So. This is this is a great combination. All right, so uh, let's let's get our blood up here. Uh, the Rapture, nineteen ninety five, recorded with John Cale of Velvet Underground. Just for the record, uh, a few weeks after this came out, they were dropped by Polydor after about like 17 years on the label. Um, a label who, by the way, they had held out on a deal for a long time despite a sort of feeding frenzy because they wanted full creative control. So kudos to them. And they made the most of that full creative control across their career. But this album got them seriously fucking dropped. Explain. <laughs> I mean, what is there to say? It is it is my least favourite Susie and the Banshees album for a reason. I... I have trouble listening to this. Like, I will put it on and I have to stop, like, halfway through. I'm just, like, usually, and I'm not usually like that. When I put an album on, I listen to it pretty much all the way through. This is one of those where I just, I don't know, it it's it just seems like they were just kind of phoning it in at this point. It doesn't really seem like, and it also seems like they weren't jiving either. So it's not a surprise that this is their last album that they put out. 
because it just it seems like the band was not really sure what they were doing at this point and Susie yeah. kind of had her own solo thing in mind and I don't know like it, it's yeah I, I'd never really return to this I don't even think there's a song on here I like if I if I'm looking at the track listing here I don't I can't even think of one that I listen to you hate to see it happen yeah they they, they probably called it a day after this right so that was probably the best that's probably the best move <laughs> Um, At least they had the common sense to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Many, many, many have not. And have done that. Oh, we really want to go down to an independent. It's really refreshing to be back in an independent and be a small band again. And you're like, bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's like a quick tour of the Susie back catalog, right? And before we go into Tinderbox, let's let's just kind of get this out the road here. They are a fucking massively influential band. Massively influential. I mean, they're popular, but their 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 legacy within the musical circles is astonishing. Like among just some of the people that have gone on record about this band, I mentioned Peter Hook, Joy Division, New Order, Robert Smith. Obviously, says Susie and the Banshees and Wire were the best bands of that era. And um, both Morrissey, Boo, and Johnny Marr, yay. <laughs> um, Morrissey said that modern groups, none of them were as good as Susie and the Banshees at full pelt. You uh, two. Uh, I've gone on record, especially The Edge, uh, Depeche Mode, I've mentioned in particular the song Candyman has been one of the greatest songs of that era. Jesus and Mary Chain, My Bloody Valentine, Thurston Moore, Sonic Youth, Jane's Addiction, Bobby Gillespie, A Primal Scream. Uh, Tom York said that seeing Susie on stage in 1985 made him want to become a performer. Jeff Buckley, The Beta Band, LCD Sound System, TV and the Radio, PJ Harvey, obviously, Garbage, obviously, Courtney Love, obviously, who all channeled to some extent some of Susie's kind of energy. Massive, Asta- Massive Attack, Billy Corgan, obviously, Suede. <laughs> Um, Faith No More, who, as I said, covered Switch, Arcade Fire, The Gossip, uh, Block Party, who I mentioned, Santa Gold, and most importantly, The Weeknd. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that is, that is like honestly just scratching the surface of the people that are hugely into this band. And yeah, especially Juju get crazy amount of mentions for the guitar innovation for that approach. As famous as they are, they're still somewhat unsung. Yeah, regardless. Yeah, and and you mentioned the weekend, and out here, of course, in the states, uh, American football, you know, is huge. Mm. And the weekend performed a Susie and the Banshees song at the Super Bowl. He played Happy House, like in the middle of some of his songs. All of a sudden, I heard I was I had the Super Bowl on. I heard Happy House. I was like, there's no way that The weekend is covering a Susie and the Banshees song at the Super Bowl where no one watching, well, not no one watching, nobody in attendance probably even knew who that was. Yeah, yeah. And it was was incredible. Yeah. Imagine the the paycheck they got for that song. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Right. Oh, my goodness. Uh, She was probably flicking through yachts uh, while she watched it. (laughs) I think, you know, a lot of the bands you've mentioned have certainly sold more records than they have as well. Like, mm. For absolute sure. Yeah, you and too? I, Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. And I think I think you're probably right, Chris. They are still somewhat unsung. Everybody knows the name. If you like music, you do know who Susie... You have heard the name Susie in the band. She's, of course, I'd heard of them and never actually properly listened to them, of course. But mm-hmm. they, are, they are an anomaly, I think. So let, let's indulge yourselves uh, in 
dig into Tinderbox in a little bit of detail. Ryan, you want to take our hands and lead us through? Yeah, let's do it. Tinderbox uh, seventh album. We established that already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm seventh. Mark. I think it may be the sex, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, this comes out in 1986, and Candyman starts it off. Already things are dark here with this song. This is a really messed up song about a child molester. But it even though it's got this creepy theme to it and feel, it, it does have this like really catchy, kind of lighthearted feel at the same time. It's kind of a weird mesh of like creepy subject matter. How she delivers the chorus is kinda got this creepy voice to it. But at the same time, there's there's like this almost pop sound to it as well. Um, but I, yeah, it's, uh, they made it a single too. So this was, mm-hmm. it's funny how songs like this that are fucked up make it into singles. Like they become the hit, mm-hmm. the hit song, like, you know, Today by the Smashing Pumpkins or, or like Golden Brown. Or uh, mm-hmm. what was the police song that was about a stalker? Was it Every Breath You Take? I think. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting how this song about a child molester ended up becoming one of their singles. But I dread that there's some sort of subtext in it as well about heroin because heroin was such a big part of the '80s scene and such a big part of the scene they were moving in that, that there's references to it throughout this record, including on this one. I think it's interesting because this is John Carruthers. He's just arrived. He was a member of a band called Clock DVA before this, and the song starts with guitar, with a shitload of guitar. Yeah, I mean, the drumming is super vibrant, really driving. The only thing I have about this song is, for me, that the hook, whilst it's very recognisable, I don't find it very enjoyable if that makes sense it doesn't pull in any melodic sort of part of me it just it's there and it's effective and it's well written but there's there's some sort of melodic ingredient missing in this song for me for it to really hit the mark i think i like the way that the like the candy man that see that that hook for me is a, it's twisted and i really like that that was that sample. Um, that was amazingly yeah. accurate. And you know <laughs> I, I, something something i quite like to say um as i read these notes is so I completed these notes last night, right? In fact, I wrote them all last night after listening yeah. to the record. Leaving your homework to the last minute, not, not a surprise. I was quite drunk, and I don't remember <laughs> I don't remember anything that I've written here. <laughs> I'm reading it for the first time, like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's safe to say I enjoyed this song. Um, I've listened to the record a lot over the course of the week, um, and it does stand out for me in the discography. We'll come to that in a wee sec. I love like I love the guitar tones on this record on this song in particular. Um there's like na na na's around three minutes ten, which are brilliant. Um it's just such a tune. I think it's just a tune. Yeah, I agree. It it is um, a good tune. I'm more of a fan of uh Sweetest Chill. That is also great, yeah. Yeah. Um, I get, we get a bit darker, a bit gothier with it. There's those layers of ooze over them, which I think are quite classy. And, you know, the vocal in it has a gentle kind of bluesiness to it, which uh, is it's less punk. It's got some really nice bends, and she's quite confident with her delivery, clearly. Um, 
Uh, this is also a tune where you start to notice the, the Yamaha DX7 that synthesizer I was talking about. Apparently Severin had got one before this and it, you know, it features throughout and it's got these really bright, sparkling, pleasing tones that, that, that make a lot of the texture of this album so interesting. Yeah, that double-tracked guitar, the electric and acoustic thing. I mean, it's done to death, but it works really well here. It, it, it generates... It's a big feature. Yeah, it's yeah. a big feature in this. Yeah, it generates a really spooky vibe, um, and her voice meshes with it really well. That There's like a sort of vibrato that she's like effect and a sort of double-tracked echo on the whispery bits, which is just a really nice bit of production as well. I, I love Sweetest Chill, and it's so moody. This is Susie and the Banshees really, I think, showing their growth in this song because you I don't think you would have heard a song like this on a previous record and I really yeah. I really love how it's just so chilling it's got this really like cold vibe to it and mm-hmm. I, yeah it's it's a fantastic song and it's a it's a good it's a good song to have after Candyman which is such a weird beginning to then get Swedish chill it's not so guitar driven it's so much more atmospheric than than Candyman, so yeah, mm. yeah. Um, you know what else Merritt's talking about? The fact that the third track in this is an Alison Chains song. <laughs> This unrest being an Alison Chains song. <laughs> um, it is interesting that you bring up Alice in Chains because the vibe, the the guitar vibe is is similar. Actually, yeah, I, yeah. I'm telling I'm telling you. I know you're probably trying to run it in your head, but see, after we've done this, go and listen, and I guarantee you, Alice in Chains could have done a cover of this, and it would not have been even a touch out of place on Dirt or even on the the self titled. It is very much from that school of misanthropy the kind of proto-grunge thing that I spoke about it's really riddled with pessimism and I guess it continues that heroin sort of connotation but I mean I I, I just think it's a really interesting direction for them to go in at this point mm. and it's you know, I have no way of knowing if Alison Chains were a fan of Susan the Banshees, or at least I've never seen them say so uh, but that tune really really is right on the money for it Yeah I think a lot of the chorus look at so many nice things happening the drums are a bit off kilter the guitar pans about the left and right speaker um, and there's like a, a little soft keyboard bit at the end of it as well it's just a really rhythmic song it kind of goes along and you kind of move with it and I, I like that especially at this at this point in the album because then the next song it's been stuck in my head for like two weeks <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I think I noticed that for a lot of people this is their favourite tune in this Um, it's, it's a fucking amazing song. Yeah, that, <laughs> it really that is. Opening, yeah, it's a great song. That opening theme's the big DX7 synth thing again mm. that I was telling you about. Really identifiable sound. Yeah, really atmospheric. The keys, yeah. It's, it's a really nice lead line. Um, on that am song. I reading too much into it as well? I mean, 
this this album was recorded in the same studio as Heroes by Bowie, right? And I really feel that you can tell that on this on this particular track. Was that in Berlin? Yeah, Hansa Hansa Studios. Yeah, yeah, huh. um, yeah. That's where they recorded Heroes, and I think that was the only one of the Berlin trilogy that was actually fully recorded there. But but yeah, that uh, that would make sense. That you bring that up, you can hear a little bit of similar tones um, mm-hmm. with that. Even for just, sure, yeah. A lot of the multi-tracking of the guitar. I mean, when you're working in the studio with engineers and stuff like that, you get a lot of the same things happening, a lot of the same equipment, and you know, same approaches. And there's just, yeah, there's something kind of ephemeral about it that that really makes me think of that. It's got a double chorus as well. You know, the, the all, all you cities lying dust is the main hook, mm-hmm. but there's a keyboard melody which underlines it. It's just really catchy in and of itself. Um, and it's got a wood block in it, which is a really nice touch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it's it's a great song, and the subject matter is great too. I mean, talking about Pompeii's destruction and and everything. That's that's I don't know. Like, when I love. I'm a history guy. I'm a history teacher. So when bands when they delve into history like that, I always am drawn to it. And this one does a great job. It's so. I mean, it's it's catchy, but it's a very dark song with what it's talking about. And I think a lot of people when I when I play this song, a lot of people really like it and it doesn't matter if they've heard Susie and the Banshees before this is one of those songs that most people hear and they're like that's a great tune It's really nice on that. Um, I like the guitar tone and the drum sound. The drums have again have so much reverb, but they sound huge. I think it's a good pacer after the last four songs. And um, there's a really cool harmony in the vocals that kind of bounces around both channels. Really nice. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a really crisp sounding song. Mm-hmm. I thought like it's a very nicely, sweetly produced tune. Um, I think as well that outro, that guitar layering effect, it creates almost like a harpsichord feel. It's a very strange mm-hmm. kind of dual harmonic thing that's happening. Um, I think it's thin in melodic hooks. This song, I think it's it's quite a lot of emphasis in the style and less on the sort of singability or something. But yeah, I mean it's decent. <laughs> I like Budgie's drumming on it for sure. I I think that Budgie doesn't get a lot of credit as a drummer, and I think he's he's a fantastic drummer, especially on songs like this where he has where they're synced together, him and him and the guitarist and. Um, there's a lot of moments where they have the, the same line mm-hmm. together and they have mm-hmm. to be really in rhythm with each other and not really easy to do, right? Um, so I really I really like this song for that. But also, again, all these songs have a great atmosphere to them that I think this album shows. And this was getting... This, to me, is Susie and the Banshees at their, their darkest. So um, I, that's one of the reasons why I picked this album. Mm-hmm. Um, funny you mentioned Budgie because a track where Budgie deserves great credit is Parties Fall. I think that flam motif in that song is one of the best things about it. It's just a, it's a really, really nice touch. It's a song that 
I think flowers quite nicely in that pre-chorus, albeit it's not the most sort of it's not the most overwhelming melody. You feel like it's going to go somewhere else, but then it finally does. I think the key to Party's Fall is actually the big ending. It's stronger, it's got loads of energy, it's got a really nice underlying guitar line to it. I think that that track is it's got an interesting arrangement, but I, I love those songs that go into those big outros. It's it sweep you along with them. So mm. yeah. After the slight dip of cannons for me, it picks up quite well. Yeah, it's uh it's a it's a catchy one. The topic, as far as I understood it, was about people going to parties and being fake and mm. not really being how they truly are. So it's kind of got a it's a it's a deeper song and uh, the message there is kind of pessimistic, I think, <laughs> which is fine. This album is completely like that. I mean, as a whole, the album doesn't really have a lot of bright moments in terms of the subject matter. So I really like how the song is kind of catchy and melodic, but it's dark poking at people saying you're fake. You know, you go to these parties and and you act completely different than how you really are to show off. And, and I don't know, it's kind of Susie maybe spitting some venom. Yeah. Spoonful of sugar, have a sweet song saying mean things. Yeah. Right. That reminded me of the Cocktail Twins. Mm, Maybe, maybe. Um, I wasn't quite there yet. Um, and then it, it, towards the end there's like a synth line that comes in it just sort of anchors the outro which I think is really cool uh, I think 92 is a good song and an interesting song to discuss because I think that has a little bit more of the cocktail thing for me in the sense that you know between that vocal sample that opens it and the guitar arriving there was a big drum sound and a big drum pattern that really reminds me of the Shirelles track Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow It's almost like a an ironic nod to sixties pop, uh, even in the way that they've they've sort of slightly overcooked the production on that drum sound. It feels quite deliberate as a result. Um, I mean, the song overall obviously has a big time eighties goth thing going on. Sure. I think it's it's also got that kind of playful backing vocal. Uh, well, I, I think it's probably Susie multi layering vocals, but it's a really eccentric kind of wittery up and down thing mm-hmm. that's quite tongue in cheek as well. I mean, that, that whole track feels quite self-aware, but, you know, it's artistically interesting in that. Yeah, it's a big, lush song. There's, there's loads of really good guitar sounds on it as well. Um, there's a big distorted guitar or maybe synth that comes in occasionally, which I think is a really nice vibe. One of the reasons I like your record is because they're always doing something different. There's always a different sound on, on every song. A new sound. It's not just like plugging guitar, like amps in and just playing, <laughs> playing like 10 songs with the same sentence, you know? I think... There's a lot of ambition on this album and I think this this song really underlines that, especially the call and response vocal thing you're talking about, Chris, as well. Yeah, and, and don't forget the intro from uh It Came From Outer Space, the movie. Yeah. Is that is that what it's from? Yeah. I didn't actually know. Yeah, that, that guy speaking at the beginning is from that movie. <laughs> and uh yeah, it's a it's a really cool song. And I do I do hear a little bit of the Cocteau twins in there. But it's a it's a doomy song too. It's it's I don't know. I, I've always found it to be sort of catastrophic kind of like cities and dust where it's talking not not the same sound but the same subject matter where it's kind of talking about 
the end of something like the rising temperatures are causing destruction and, and mayhem. And so, uh, again, not a very light hearted song, but that's why I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that doom and gloom stuff that Susie and the Banshees does here on this album. And then um, finally, Land's End. Very unusual drum motif in this one as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I find the, the the tune overall. I find this one a little bit ponderous. I realise it's at the end of a record, um, but I, I'm I was thankful when it stepped up about two and a half minutes. There's a new guitar part comes in. And I think it sort of revitalises the entire tune itself because um, I was pretty on the fence about it up until that point. Well, this is my favorite Susie and the Banshees song. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey guys, we're being honest. (laughs) Because that intro and that guitar line at the intro is so good and it's so eerie. And when it's played live, it is creepy. Like the live versions of it just haven't, I don't know. It's just a very haunting tune. I do like it when it changes pace and it kicks up. But I also love how it goes back down to that creepy, eerie guitar tune. I really that is that is such a cool part of the song. So I yeah, I love I love this track. It's a good closer, I think. I really like that single guitar and the paired back drum and the single kind of bass notes. I think that's really, really cool. There's something interesting about the production that I like. The bass is like right in the center whilst whilst everything else kinda undulates around it, which I think is really nice. Um it kind of feels as though everything's enveloping you. Um, and I think that's really, really clever. And the, out- the outro from about five minutes is just so intense. Like her vocal is just so good at that point. Yeah, I think it's a cool song and it just swirls towards the end, you know. Yeah, I like this. I think it's a good closer for sure. Um, to, to, to give some overall final impressions, I might as well. I, I have a feeling I'll probably be the most uh, reserved. It's definitely one of their most direct albums. It's Probably arguably their most direct sounding album since The Scream. It's I would suggest one of the most cohesive albums since The Scream as well. Like it holds together nicely. It sounds like it's part of the same sessions, both writing and recording. So I think it has like a nice together, contained, consistent character about it. I did on a number of occasions in it, as I mentioned, find the melodic decisions a little bit underwhelming. The arrangements were nice. The musicianship was nice. The recording was lovely, but. I wasn't entirely sure, given given that I know what they're capable of elsewhere when you listen to tracks like Dazzle. And there is stuff that they're able to do, something that does just yank on your heart. I felt some of their melodic decisions in this album just didn't do that. And that's maybe a taste thing, but for me, I like my, my emotions to be more obviously manipulated. Um, maybe this was just a bit too subtle for me. But yeah, I mean, it's the seventh album. This band has outlasted most of their peers. We're all in agreement that despite the fact that they're a household name to some extent, a lot of people are still kind of unaware of why that is. I think they're underrated, full stop. Um, so personally, I've, I, I think they should have something in here. And on balance, yeah, maybe this is it because I don't, I don't have any other albums held together quite as well as this one. Yeah, um, I don't think it's their best album. I think Juju's their best album. I do think this is probably the most consistent though. Um, I just think the highs are higher in Juju 
with the exception of Cities and Dust, which I think is just a phenomenal bit of songwriting, frankly. Yeah, yeah I think we'd be pushing our luck if we tried to put Juju in as an unsung Absolutely, album. I think yeah. this, is, this is a more appropriate choice. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I was going to say next, is if you're talking about unsung, then it's got to be this album, because Juju is the most sung, you know. So for me, this, this goes in quite easily. Yeah, so I think it's their most unsung because it doesn't get the same attention that Juju gets, or even, in my opinion, I think Kaleidoscope gets a little bit more attention than this record does, and I think it's right up there at the top. Um, so, I mean, I for me, when I want to listen to Susie and the Banshees, I want the atmosphere, I want the mood to be dark and more of that gothy kind of atmospheric sound, and this album delivers that from start to finish. And they're like you said, it's consistent. It is very consistent. It's a tight album. It does not really waver too much. Like you don't get a lot of roller coasters here. But that's kind of why I like it because it it is doing what I kind of wanted it to do. <laughs> and and it's for me. I can listen to this all the time, start to finish, no problem. It's a perfect record for me. Again, I mean, it's not only unsung. Maybe it's because I've heard Juju too much, but I would put this for me as my favorite of their albums just because of how consistent it is for me. And Juju is a little less consistent, but still a great album. I just think maybe I've heard it too many times. Yeah, well, I think we're all, well, we're all in agreement then. It's, it's hopefully the, the public vote this album into discography. Um, we're still doing polls on Twitter because Facebook is just not really helping us at the moment. So if you... If you want to vote if this should go into discography or not then go to our twitter twitter.com forward slash unsung pod to, to do that um, so shall we do the nexus gents A complicated series of connections between different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and here's here's the best bit about this, Ryan. Uh, whoever picked the album gets the honor of going first every time. <laughs> oh, whoa, great! Right on. <laughs> I don't even know if I did yeah. this right, so we'll see. Yeah. So hang on, just for the benefit of the audience. Obviously, we we pulled the Nexus out in private here, uh, but the the lucky winner, courtesy of Turnstile Blues on Twitter, Turnstile getting another one out of the hat, uh, is Thomas Sankara. Uh, Thomas Sankara is uh, the late president of uh, Burkina Faso. And just to explain to people what the Nexus is, because we had a hell of a time trying to explain this <laughs> to Ryan, uh, we need to try and link Susie and the Banshees to Thomas Sankara. Um, by any means necessary. So it's like six degrees of separation, but not... 600. 600. Yes, it could be 6,000. <laughs> Please don't be 6,000, because that would take a long time. <laughs> yeah, so here we go. I'll, I'll kick it off here. Yeah. So Susie and the Banshees did a very famous song called Hong Kong Garden. Mm-hmm. And Hong Kong Garden was featured in the 2006 Sofia Coppola film Marie Antoinette. Okay. Mar- uh, the film Marie Antoinette is loosely based on the queen of the same name, Marie Antoinette, who was queen during the French Revolution. The French Revolution inspired the Haitian military leader Toussaint Louverture to lead his own revolt, which became the Haitian Revolution. The Haitian Revolution was uh, one of the inspirations for the Cuban Revolution, 
which Fidel Castro cited, which saw Che Guevara involved and the president of Burkina Faso from 1983 to 1987 was Thomas Sinkara, who was often referred to as the African Che Guevara for his revolutionary activity. So... Holy shit, that was so fucking pro. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like that, did, really... I, did I do it right? Yes. Dude, you, you did it better than right. Oh, that yeah. Was, that, uh, was, that, that was spotless. That was great. Yeah, that was really great. <laughs> wow. You I was, I was worried. I was worried for a minute. <laughs> oh, my God. Absolutely uh, nailed it. Mark, uh, why don't you shamble through yours? Yeah, okay. Look at that. <laughs> um, so, Susie and the Banshee's second album is the album Join Hands. Uh, the first song on that is called Poppy Day. And it has lyrics, the, all the lyrics are taken from a, a John McRae poem, which is of the same name. He's actually most well known for his poem In Flanders Field, um, which he, he wrote after fighting at the Second Battle of Ypres in Flanders, um, which is where, which is actually the same place where Germany launched the first chemical attacks of World War One, which was with chlorine gas. On the side of the Allies was obviously the French, and um, the French had a colonial infantry corps called the... Senegalese uh, trailers yeah the Senegalese trailers and all the men in the corps were recruited from Senegal and French West Africa including Upper Senegal and Niger so Upper Senegal and Niger then became the self-governing colony within the French community called the Republic of Upper Volta which is named after the River Volta which runs through the region Um, and the Republic of Upper Volta became Burkina Faso in 1984 when it was named as such by President Thomas Sankara who named it as such on on the first anniversary of his accession and it translates to the land of upright people Good one, Um, okay Mine's a little bit more sprawling, but I'll try and whiz through <laughs> them. Susie and the Banshees uh, released a song called Kiss Them For Me, which we mentioned earlier on from their 1991 album Superstition, which was a tribute to Jane Mansfield. Um, Jane Mansfield, pin-up actress legend, uh, was killed in a car crash on June 29th, 1967. Uh, she was travelling at the time with, I think it was her ex-partner and three children. Something to do with like a, a vehicle spraying for bugs or something like that and then the mist from the spray they didn't see the trailer of the vehicle and hit the trailer and that's it's an interesting story um but anyway as i say our, one of the children in the back seat uh, was our three-year-old daughter maria or mariska um who survived along with our two brothers uh, and that was mariska hargate who became famous as an actress in her own right as captain olivia benson in law and order special victims unit uh, now she's been in a few other things, uh, including classic film Ghoulies, the monsters that come up through the toilet. Never heard um, of that. <laughs> but anyway, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, the favourite dun dun noise. We all know that noise, right? Yeah. <laughs> that noise was created by a guy called Mike Post. Uh, it features seven sounds, and one of those seven sounds is a sample of 500 Japanese men stamping. All right. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get that sound? Did he, did he find that or did he ask 500 Japanese men stamp? Somebody sampled it. Um, Mike Post worked on a lot of famous TV things. Uh, A-Team, Blossom, Magnum PI, Quantum Leap, loads more. He also, bizarrely, produced 95 by Dolly Parton and Van Halen 3. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Now, <laughs> Van Halen 
are obviously very famous for the brown M and M's anecdote mm-hmm. on the riders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is that uh, they insisted on having a huge bowl of M and M's for the rider, uh, and that the brown M and M's were removed. And for years and years, it's sort of become like, oh, look at that! What what excess these guys were just so ridiculous. But their their point was, yeah, that was a thing. It was a very deliberate thing because we had these very specific lighting rigs, these very dangerous things that had to be properly uh, fitted and provided for at sets and we were turning up to shows and there were all kinds of problems at the shows and it was clear that the promoters weren't reading the riders so in the riders we started putting these little traps to find out if they had read the rider so you knew you had a good promoter if you went in there and the brown M&Ms were separated it would be like alright this person's reliable it was their way of telling who the good promoters were so this whole kind of apocryphal thing about it being an example of how out of control they were it's not really very fair it, it it did have a function. But anyway, M&M's were created by Mars Confectionery, all right? Forrest Mars Sr., the son of the founder of Mars, said he stole the idea for M&M's from candy that he saw soldiers eating during the Spanish Civil War, mm. right? Um, and that candy was Smarties, which was invented by Roundtree's in the UK and it was invented as a way to let British soldiers around the world including in the Empire and India and places like that hence why it was popular in Spain take chocolate with them in warm climates so that the candy coating allowed them to still have chocolate with them to kind of keep up morale and things like that okay so Roundtree's also invented the Kit Kat in 2003, uh, Mr. Jason Statham did an advert for Kit Kat. I don't know if you remember that. It was about being a salmon and how you spend all your life going upstream and then eventually you die. And he was basically like, fuck being a salmon, just eat a Kit Kat. <laughs> um, 2002, just a year prior to that, uh, in the film The Transporter, uh, there's a scene when Jason Statham frantically drives a Renault 5 uh, until the engine completely burns out. Quite a good scene, it's quite funny. Um, and he punches a bonnet. Uh, and then in the mid-1980s, all politicians in Burkina Faso had their Mercedes state-provided cars uh, replaced by Renault 5s uh, <laughs> as an act of solidarity on the orders of President Thomas Sankara. Um, it was to sort of emphasise the sort of socialist credentials of the country and obviously Thomas Sankara, socialist coup in 1983, he's killed in 1987 Africa's Che Guevara, as Ryan said good with things like vaccines reformed a lot of things, got rid of genital mutilation and forced marriage, but also you know, behind a lot of extrajudicial killings, banned unions hated by Amnesty International, so complex character, but yeah, there you go There we go, <laughs> and that, that is our journey from, from Susie and the Banshee to Thomas Sankara I didn't think it was possible, I was like, there's no way <laughs> But I think we all did that in quite dignified fashion as well. You know, there's been some absolute stinkers in the past. Yes, mostly by me, but yeah. <laughs> mostly by you. Yeah. Uh, well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate that. Is there anything you want to plug? Well, um, just, uh, yeah, listen to the Broken Record Player podcast. We, I have an episode that comes out every other week, and you can listen to it on Spotify, Google, Apple, pretty much anywhere you can get a podcast. And every once in a while, I do record giveaways, and so I have people come on and and like the the posts I put on Instagram and tag friends, and you can get entered into a random drawing. The last one we did was actually "Purple Rain" by Prince. So someone, oh, we got the alarm in at the end, oh. right at the death. <laughs> I hadn't mentioned them at all. <laughs> so uh, yeah, if you if you want to chance at winning a record 
head on over to the Instagram page, follow us, and uh, we'll have some of those in the future. Awesome. That was a lot of fun, Ryan. Thanks very much, man. It was a great suggestion, fun week of research before it, and we appreciate your time. Yeah, Yeah, thank you so much. much. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I would love to do this again, especially that last part we did. That was cool. Yeah, yeah, you get you get pretty hooked on that, man. Pretty soon, that's going to overtake the podcast itself. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just going to be that. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, and I'm away for a hot toddy, guys. I need to deal with this head cold, but uh, you guys look after yourselves. Cool. All right, man. Bye. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.